He is taking leadership of this missionary endeavor, and he's actually rising from this point on to probably even outshine his counterparts. That's not in a prideful way, but we've got to remember who we're dealing with here. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 of the New Test- uh, 27 New Testament books. He's a heavy hitter. The second thing we've noticed is a conclusion of partnership. John decided, John Mark decided to leave, go back to Jerusalem, and dissolve this partnership. And most scholars, when you read on this verses, will say that there's probably about a 10-year gap here, a period, from the beginning of chapter 12 to about verse 13 of chapter 13. And in that 10 years, John Mark is serving as a sort of intern to uh, Barnabas and Paul. He's learning how to do ministry. He's probably their Bible holder. He's setting out the, all the stuff, getting things ready for all the events. And he's learning how to do ministry. But after about 10 or so years, he calls it quits per se and heads back to Jerusalem. And we could speculate. There's, many, there's much speculation on why John Mark left. And I don't think that's important. If the Bible wanted us to know, if God wanted us to know, he would have inspired Luke to put it in there, but he didn't. But what we do know is that John Mark did leave and that he did go back to Jerusalem and that Paul in Acts 15 said that he abandoned the ministry because of that. And we'll look at that in a future sermon. But for now, let's continue reading, picking up in verse 14, which says, but they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So what we see is that even though they leave, uh, John Mark leaves, the mission continues. Even though Paul interprets this as abandonment of the ministry, the mission goes on. They don't get uh, affected by this. Uh, and sometimes they would just briefly pass through these towns. Other times they would stop and set up shop, preach the gospel, share the good word. Um, But they didn't just choose the easiest and most logical route. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of maps, but if you looked on maps where they were journeying through, this is not easy highways, right? This is highland country. This is mountainous terrains and valleys that they had go up and down. They, They didn't have paved roads like we do today. This was a hard way, but they knew that this journey was important enough to the mission to be accomplished. And I don't know about you, but sometimes as we journey through life, we hit these hard patches. God has called us somewhere. Maybe it's to a new town, a new job, a new church, or whatever it might be. And we come up, and life is going good, and then we hit a valley. We hit a pivot in the road, and, it, and we say, well, clearly this isn't God because it's hard. Life is too hard for this to be God. And the problem is here in the Canadian churches, we swallowed this lie hook, line, and sinker that if God is in it, then it's going to be easy. But that's not true. I'm here to tell you today, friends, that when you follow God, it's like driving on Saskatchewan roads, (laughs) right? There's potholes everywhere. You go from Alberta and you just drop into Saskatchewan, right? And it's just a hard terrain. It's not easy to follow God, but he's promised that he would never leave us on this journey. Amen? All right, picking up in the later latter half of 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogues and they sat down. And after reading from the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So what we see Paul and his companions doing is they're doing something that they have learned over this 10-year period 
on their missionary journey. And they're starting with a common location. They're going to a neutral ground, something that the people who they're ministering to understand and feel safe in. And we can do the same thing with the people of Drumheller, with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, whoever we come in contact with. We can invite them all we want to church, but to get them actually through that door is probably the scariest thing for them. But if we begin to meet them in neutral places, use language that they understand, like we see Paul and his companions doing, it makes a really big effect. We grow in relationship with them. And that's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing. They enter into the synagogue. They begin participating naturally in the worship, what is going on, because it's a familiar place. And they're, they're determined to grow in relationship with them. And the Jewish liturgy is always the same. Sabbath after Sabbath, they would come, they would sing a song, they would read a scripture, they would recite the scripture then together, and then they would sing another song. And then sometimes one of the, the, the leaders of, of the synagogue would stand up and give an exhortation from that scripture, or they would look around and see if there was visiting rabbis or somebody of high importance, and they would call upon them to preach. And don't you wish that church was like that today? Like, come on, Daryl. Hey, come on up. It's your turn. Grab a mic. Come and share a word with us today. We're just going to throw it out to whoever wants to talk. That would be nerve-wracking. That is a guaranteed way to make some more space in this church. It's just by calling you up to talk unprepared. But Barnabas, they came in, Paul and Barnabas, they came in, they sat down, participated in worship to develop a relationship with these people. And then they were called upon by the providence of God to speak. And the sermon that he shares is where we're going to dedicate the, uh, the majority of our time today. But before we jump into that, I want to share with you the two main points that I see out of Paul's sermon. And the first point is that first he's asking his listeners and us, his readers, to look back. To look back to what God has done. To look back to God's faithfulness. And then the second main point that he asks us to do is to look up to who God is, who he is now, this transcendent, holy God who is the same today as he was back then. So those are the two main points. And the sermon picks up in verse 16, which says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So the first thing we see under his first category of looking back is this idea of a promise. A promise that God gave his people and God intended to keep. How many of you here know that God is a promise keeper? If he said it, it will happen. If you remember all the way back to the book of Exodus, when God, God's people were held captive by the Egyptians, they were enslaved by the Egyptians, they were working for the Egyptians for free, and God sent Moses and used Moses as a mouthpiece and, and led the people out of Egypt. And he made a promise that I'm not going to leave you here in Egypt. He's fulfilling this pro promise. I'm going to lead you to this land that's flowing with milk. And honey, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. But I, I, I'm coming with you. Remember that pillar of fire and smoke by day and night. God was with them in their midst, leading them. He didn't say, hey, hey, here's the coordinates. Figure it out on your own. No, I'm going to lead you despite their disobedience. And I look at that and I reflect on my own life. And I think, wow, 
What has God promised to me? What has God promised to you? Much like the Israelites, he promised that he would lead us. Right? He would lead us into good things. He's promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, but he'll be with us. Aren't you glad that there's nowhere in the world, nowhere in your mind, nowhere in your deep, dark thoughts that you can escape God? He's always there. He's always, you're always within his reach. At the highest of highs, he's there. At the lowest of lows, the, the author, or one of the authors in the Psalms says, even to Shiloh, he is there. To the utter depths of the earth, he is there. And this is a promise that he'd always be with you. And that's the same promise that he showed to his people Israel that Paul is pulling out here and that he shows to you and me today. God's track record is promise-keeping, 100%. He has never failed. And that gives us hope and joy because now we can look at the promises that God has given to us in Christ Jesus and know without a shadow of a doubt that they are yes and amen. Do you believe that, FBC? That his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And that includes the promise that he will come again and personally wipe every tear from your eyes. What a beautiful reality that is. The second thing we see under uh, the look back category is provision. Let's look at verses 18 to 19 that says, And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So in these two verses, we see the idea of provision, that God has made a promise that I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt and I'm going to lead you into the land of hope and of blessing and where you have a future of blessing for me. But even in the midst of all that, I'm not just going to lead you there, but I'm going to provide for you. And I want you, if you're in the habit of this, just to circle those words that he put up with them or your translation might say he cared for them. Even in their disobedience, even in their failure, even in their constant complaining, he provided them. He gave everything that they needed, and he did it miraculously. I mean, like water would come out of rocks. Seas would be split so the people of God could walk over on dry land. Manna, this weird bread, would be on the ground every morning so they would have food. Quail would fly in so they could catch them and have meat. He is the God who provides. He is a faithful God, and, the, and he's promised. And he provides for us. And we can look at our life and we can know that we can trust him. Looking back, we can see how he's provided for us. How he's provided for you in the past. And how you'll know he's provided for you in the future. That's why we have these rocks up here. We fill in these promises that God has done for us. And we can go back and pull them out and remember as a church. What have you done, Lord? Oh, you healed me. You blessed me. Some of you know this story about me, but when God called me to go to my first round of Bible college, he called me to go to an American school that the dollar was just astronomical at the time, and I just couldn't believe how he would do that. And I had $5 and some gum wrappers in my pocket, and I said, okay, Lord, I guess I'll go. And I applied for this school, and over the course of the years that I was there, $30,000 came in out of somebody else's pockets. I, I mean, I was in class and I'd get called to the financial auditing office and they'd say, you got to get a payment to 
by next week or you're done. And somebody would go to, the, I wouldn't even tell the church, somebody would go to the church office and lay $3,000 on the table and say, here's for Aaron's schooling. I just feel like I should bless him. I never had to worry because God provided. And he will provide for you, FBC. He will. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow for what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear because if he can take care of this flower or this bird, like how much better are you than a bird? Okay, I know birds are pretty cool, but you're better than birds. He will certainly take care of you. He reminds us of this truth in Philippians when he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and his glory. He is a faithful God. He has promised things to us that we can be sure of, that he'll provide for us, and he always will. How many of you are thankful for that today? I'm thankful for that. Amen. Have you seen his faithfulness in your life? As you look back, can you see how he has met those needs, even maybe at the last moment? Oftentimes in our life, we can only move forward by looking back and seeing what God has done. The third thing we see in verse 20 is this idea of patience. So let's continue reading. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel and the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And, he, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, the one who's coming. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. There's this idea of patience. And this is where Paul begins to transition from looking back to looking up. But before he gets to his second point of looking up, he gives them a brief little history lesson about their own lives. He says, yes, God has promised you things to his chosen people. Yes, God has provided for you. But don't forget the fact that God has also been very patient with you. We look at these people that, that, Luke just de that Paul detailed in his sermon that they, 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 they're not content with having judges. They're not content with just prophets, but they're saying, we want a king. And that's a direct slap in the face of God's divine kingship over Israel. And they say, we want a king. So he says, sure, here's a king. But guess what? He's a failure. He's horrible. And what we see from that point on is this slew of rebellions and failure and disobedience and dishonor to God. Like, just read your Old Testament. And you're going, wow, what's happening? And all the while this is happening, God is patient. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. Why is God patient? Because he has a plan. And it's his plan of redemption that, he, that he's put into motion in the Garden of Eden, that God loved humanity so much that he wanted to redeem them for his glory that he made a way for this to be possible. 
And the encouragement for us is that we see, that we see this uh, patience displayed in Samuel, in David, and in Saul, and all these prophets throughout Israel's history. And the truth of it is still rings for us today that God uses imperfect people like me and you to execute his plan of redemption. He did that in the Old Testament with guys like David and the prophets, although they were failures. And he does it with us. He does that in my life and in your life today. His plan for redemption, his plan of sending his son Jesus on this great rescue mission so that man may be right with God. And he uses us every day to share that. You and I are modern day, everyday missionaries of the gospel here in Drumheller. Why? Because the mission of God's redemption is still alive and active today. It's still going forward. That God is in the business of taking broken, sinful people like you and me, breathing life in us, redeeming us, clothing us in his righteousness, and then commissioning us and empowering us with his Holy Spirit to be missionaries and witnesses in our community by his power. You and I have this privilege to be a witness to carrying this hope into this world. You and I. So Paul's telling them to look back. And what, what have we seen God do in our lives? Look at his promises. Look at his faithfulness. Look how he provided for you. See how he's been patient with you. But turn your attention upwards to who he is. Let's continue reading in verse 26, which says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God to us, has been sent the message of this salvation. So the first point we see in his second point of a sermon of looking up is that hope has been revealed. What we see is that hope has been revealed, not just in general, but to us. That it's been revealed to everybody. He says here, yeah, to the Jews, obviously, as God's chosen people, but also to you who fear God. Remember those from a past sermon, those who fear God are these Gentiles who feared Yahweh, Israel's God, but weren't always included in the full picture. He says, it's for you as well. So what this shows us again is that Jesus came for both Jews and non-Jews, for Gentiles, for me and you. He comes for everybody whom the Father has given him, and he will not lose one of them. Hope has been revealed to the world. He has sent his Son, and that's good news. Acts 13.27 says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. So what's Paul saying here? He's talking about the idea that Jesus has fulfilled Scripture. Old Testament prophecy. Scripture has been fulfilled in God sending his son to the world to die. And in many times this has been detailed by Old Testament prophets telling the great moment that would come, that, that this Messiah would come. And this is what the whole Old Testament was building to, the crescendo of Jesus Christ entering history. And Paul is pointing out the irony that the Jews would read these prophecies, would read these stories Sabbath after Sabbath, and they missed it. They blew it, just as Paul once had as well. Then he picks up this idea in verse 28, which says, And, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, 
they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But, but God raised him from the dead. Can you just sense the tone change in Paul's language here? He's saying, you missed it. You crucified Jesus. You rejected the Messiah that's been prophesied to you over hundreds of years. And he shows up and you execute an innocent man. You've missed it. But, he says, we got to thank God for the buts of the Bible. But God. But God. How many times in your life where you're, it's been so dark but God comes through, right? Look at the, the, the disciples. Their, their Messiah has died. It looks like game over, but God raised him from the dead. This is Paul bringing the message home to his listeners. And then in verse 31, he says, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God has promised to his fathers, and this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What we see here is Paul is establishing that witnesses have been affirmed of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus clearly and intentionally made himself physically visible to as many people as he could. Because when these books are being written, some of them even say, you can even go ask so-and-so. They're still living and breathing. This happened. We don't have that with any other book on antiquity. This happened. You can ask them. There's witnesses. It was the woman who, who at the, it was at the tomb in Matthew 28 who ran and shouted that Jesus has been resurrected. She was overjoyed. It was the 11 disciples in Matthew 28 who did what the resurrected Jesus commanded. It was Simeon in Luke 24 who, who, who witnessed and seeing the resurrected Christ. It was the two men on the road to Emmaus who were astounded and, 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 and awestruck by his teachings. It was Mary Magdalene in John 20 who shouted, I have seen the Lord, and it's you and me, FBC, now today, who can testify to the world of his greatness and of this hope and of his promise that Jesus Christ loves, he saves, and he restores. We get to witness and testify that. What has he done in your life? What is the message of hope in your life that you can be a witness to? How has God blessed you? How has God saved you? How has God healed you? How has God provided for you? How has God been faithful to you? And how has God never left you? And you and I have the privilege and the honor of affirming those truths of the goodness of his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's keep reading in verse 34, which says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
And what I see here in these verses is this idea of heaven sending a warning to his listeners. Paul is reminding his listeners that life is short. It's but a vapor. It's temporary. Even someone as great as David, King David, who was exalted probably far higher than he should have been, died. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the one who you put your hope in and look to. He died. He was just as temporary as we all are. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the resurrected Savior. Savior. Jesus is the one whom we put our hope in, not in David, not in me, not in Dave, not in any other elder or pastor you watch on TV or the internet now. What year are we in? You don't put your hope in man or woman, but in Jesus. And so there's this warning that we have to pay attention to today. And here's the reality, and I hate to burst any of your bubbles, but you're going to die. Every single one of you in this room, including myself, will die. We all have a start date, and we all have an end date, and only God knows that time. And in the middle of the start and the end date is this beautiful short thing called life. It's a beautiful gift. And we should cherish every moment of it. We should be present in every moment of it. We should be excited to be faithful to God in every moment of our lives. We are to live with joy and expectation, with thanksgiving for what God has given to us in Christ Jesus. But you might be thinking, well, it's short. It's quick. What do I do? How do I live? Well, he offers some suggestions for us to remember in this life of who we are and what we were created to be. And the first suggestion is this, that forgiveness and hope is offered. Verse 38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter in their context that you sent the Messiah to the cross. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter how low your self-esteem is. In Christ, there is hope and there is forgiveness. Friends, today is the day to surrender yourself to that forgiveness. To give yourself over to that forgiveness. The second suggestion is found in verse 39 and it's freedom promised. And it's by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This freedom is promised. This is a declaration of our freedom in Christ. This is who we are in Christ because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's free. Freedom is given and promised. And what he's saying, what he's really driving home is that these good Jewish people would say, hey, if I pay attention to these, the Torah, these first five books of the Bible, and I keep every 613 laws plus all the other ones that we added on on top of that, then I'm good, I'm secure, I'm saved. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is trying to drive home to his listeners and to us today because we too, as Christians, we, we get, tend to go, hey, if I just pray more, read my Bible more, do all these good godly things, I stop cussing and maybe I drink a little less, then I'm secure. But it's not about that. It's not a matter of keeping rules. It's not a matter of you taking your little log book and saying, okay, check that one off. I kept that one. I kept that one. I kept that one. Thinking that you're good and that you're secure 
in Christ because you've done all good things. But being forgiven, walking in this hope, and being free in who you are in Christ is because of what Jesus has done and not you. This is the message of Romans 5, which the same person preaching penned. He, said, he tells us that he's, we're declared righteous by faith, that we have peace with God, that we're no longer on a destination to eternal damnation, but we have found peace with God through Christ Jesus. And for that reason, we can rejoice even when we face affliction because affliction is what makes us more like Christ. See, when you walk in this freedom, it's because of the finished work of Jesus allows you to. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as his perfect son. You've been clothed in his righteousness. You've been covered by the blood of Jesus. He sees you in a right relationship with him. And because of that, this idea of being justified and being declared right before God, we can have relationship with this holy, holy, holy God. This God who is, in a sense, because of his holiness, unapproachable, has now become approachable through Jesus Christ. That we can boldly go before his throne in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 40 goes on to say, Beware, therefore, lest uh, least what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's quoting Habakkuk, I always say that name wrong, chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the idea that even though that true hope has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and the promises of Christ have been fulfilled and there's freedom and forgiveness freely offered and clearly laid out, he's letting us know that rejection is still likely. He's saying basically to his listeners, some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Forgiveness is free. I have to find forgiveness in Jesus. It's a free gift, but it's too good to be true. That can't be true. Surely there's something I got to give. Surely there's a bait and switch. Surely I have to bring something to the table. And I can sense perhaps what's going on in Paul's mind as a preacher He's thinking internally, this is just my speculation, that I'm laying this out for you. I'm trying so hard to tell you all the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And, but even hearing it, even though I'm trying to explain it to you in a in, in very uh, easy way, I know some of you will still reject it. And he's right. Some people will reject it, even if it's presented to them time and time again. Some of you here today have rejected it with your life, but yet you still come and play the religious card because it's some type of superstition rather than glorifying the resurrected Christ. And we see this in the summary of this sermon. The summary starts here in verse 42, which says, oh, I lost my spot. There we are. And they went out and the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. So what we see as he's, as he's finished his sermon is that his listeners have this desire to know more. Let's just be honest. How often do we do that? How often do we say that? You know, the typical routine after a service in a Canadian church is that you all come up to the pastor and you say, wow, that was a great sermon. That was an awesome sermon. Thank you for that sermon. But all you're thinking in your mind is, hey, you're about five minutes over. I need to get to lunch. My kids are going wild. But what if we, 
What if we had that same zeal, that same hunger, that, hey, that was the word of God. Thank you for preaching that. Give us that again next week. We are hungry to know more. Give me more. I want to know more. And Paul would say, I got one message for you, that I preach Christ and Christ crucified and that he's rose again. I preach the gospel. This was the message that Paul would preach over and over again. And the fullness of the gospel should lead us to a desire like this, to hunger for more, that we can't get enough of this story. Friends, it's so applicable to life. It's so rich. You'll never exhaust its entirety. It's like a sponge that you just keep wringing of water, wringing of water, wringing of water, and it just keeps pouring out. You can never exhaust the beauty and truth of the gospel until the day you die. And our desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ will also cause us to grow in our disciplines of godliness, which we see in verse 43, which says, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas are encouraging to continue in the grace of God, to grow in the discipline of grace. Our actions don't save us as we detail. But as we live out our faith, as we live out this gospel, our actions should be dictated by our faith. We should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We should be growing in our prayer. We should be growing in our hunger for his word. We should be growing in our obedience to follow Christ and his word. But never shall we believe the lie that as we do these things, that reading more, praying more, fasting more, being obedient more is what secures us. No, it's Christ and his Holy Spirit is what keeps us sustained. Both our disciplines lead us to a further understanding of this gospel and those habits they form. Okay, let's bring this thing home. Verse 44 to 45 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So what happened? It's like a change on a dime. There's a desire to know more. There was a command to grow in his word. This buzz was going around town. These Jewish listeners heard the gospel and said, I need more of that, but I can't just keep that to myself. I got to go tell my friends about this. And the whole town shows up, right? They, they're hungry to hear, so they tell others as well, because if I need this, so does my neighbor. And just to pop out of the text for a second, the studies show that the best way to have a non-churchgoer come to church, now this is game changer, listen close. This will blow your mind at how complex this is. It's by someone inviting them. I know, it's, it's, it just blows your mind. Number one reason statistically why somebody who is opposed to church will come is because someone they know has invited them. And this is what's happening. They're so hungry for the word of God that they start sharing it. You gotta hear what Paul has. And this crowd is going around them, and the Jews see this, and they become jealous. And what we see is a distraction arise in verse 46 that says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For the Lord has commended us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you, have, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Because of their boldness, despite the distraction, so many came to faith that day. And this was also kind of a double-edged sword. It was a jab at the Jewish nation because they were supposed to be a missional community. They were supposed to be the light of the world, but they got so inward focused. They got so all about keeping the law that they forgot about the world. They became closed off. So Paul and Barnabas are basically saying, we're going to fulfill what God has given to you. We're going to go to the Gentiles. And they explode it because remember the Gentiles, they could participate a little bit, but they were never fully included. But this distraction arises, and this is the number one enemy that, uh, that the uh, uh, tool that the enemy will use is distraction. As you begin to live out your faith, distraction after distraction will come in. But we need to be determined to keep going as we see, as we close. In verse 50, but the Jews incited a devout woman of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But, and I add in here, with determination, they shook off the dust from their feet and against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's a great sense of determination. What a great sense of commitment to continuing the mission in spite of distraction, in spite of persecution. What a great joy to see so many come and follow Jesus in this story. And what a great pain through distraction that they had to push through. But oh, if you and I could have that same determination, having the boldness to bring God up in conversation at work or at the hockey game or wherever you may be, having the courage to bring up God in conversation, it may be that you get some pushback. It may be that you get some distraction. It may be that you experience even some level of rejection and persecution, but we must stay focused. We must stay determined to carry out the mission of spreading this good news, this hope to the world that God sent his son Jesus to live the life we couldn't, die the death that we should have and rose again that we might be reconciled with God. It's worth walking through any valley. It's worth climbing any mountain. It's worth going over any hurdle to continue the mission wherever God might lead us. This is exciting. This is exciting, church. It's worth it. He's proved that he will provide for you. He's proved that he'll be faithful to you. Now go out there and trust him. Get in some of these awkward, messy situations and know that God will come through all the while proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I praise you, Lord, and I thank you for a church that is on mission. Lord, that you haven't forgotten about us here at Fellowship Baptist Church in Drumheller, but Lord, that you are desiring to use us as missionaries in our community to see the lost come to Christ. Father, may that be our anthem, that you have come, the hope of the world, that everything that they're desiring is found in you. And may we be witnesses to that. And may we do it all through your empowering and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.